Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 31st day of August. I'm your host, Paul White. I will let the essay speak for itself today. i got a couple paragraphs at the top that sort of explain what I'm doing, but this is a little bit different kind of essay, at least this month and next month, maybe more. So without further delay, let's get into it. It's the DDP Essay Edition for August 2022. Here at the end of a busy summer, I have been airing a never-before-released audio version of my third book, Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul. This has allowed me some breathing room and a bit of a respite as our fourth book heads to print. Now it is time for the monthly essay, and I thought it was appropriate to do something similar with this space as well. In 2016, I wrote two chapters of what I thought would be a new book. The problem was not with what I was writing, but that I was writing for the wrong reasons. I thought I needed a new book, but I had no true direction. So I wrote a couple chapters built around sermons I had preached and thoughts I had. By the end of the second chapter, I was ready to move on to other things. For the next couple of months, I'd like to share one of those chapters with you. Who knows, we may make it several months and share both chapters. Since they're full of word and encouragement, they may be helpful on your journey. And since they were mine to begin with, and I don't foresee putting them in a book anytime soon, it's time to release them. Thus, we begin this month with a chapter titled, The Illusion of Separation. The Illusion of Separation, Part 1. Genesis 3.9 Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? How does that question sound in your head? Is God angry? Is there a boom to his voice that makes the earth tremble? If the tone behind the question is one of frustration and terror, then this may be your image of God. Are you like Adam spending your time hiding behind fig leaves to cover the failures? In this mentality, the bushes provide a temporary respite from the all-seeing eye of a vengeful God. On the other hand, does God's call to Adam sound pleading? Is God worried? Is there a trembling in his voice that tugs at the heartstrings? If it seems to be the cry of a parent who looks around the crowded mall for their child but sees only strangers, then this may be your image of God. Perhaps you run toward that voice, not only because it is the sound of your father's love, but because your separation has caused him concern and you know your presence will warm his heart. When Adam's eyes were opened to his nakedness, shame filled his heart. It could be argued that the shame was a result of his nudity, or that it was the result of his having failed God. Perhaps he was ashamed of what he saw, for the picture he had of his own self was gone, replaced forever by his sin. Whatever the case, the shame was real, and it was a powerful motivator. Shame motivated Adam to cover up his nakedness. In order to accomplish the cover-up, he was forced to abandon the daily rendezvous with his Creator. God arrived at the regularly scheduled time to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, but Adam was nowhere to be found. Only shame could interfere with fellowship. Here we arrive at a fine theological point. Many would argue that sin causes separation between God and man. Upon first glance, It would appear that when Adam sinned, Adam was separated. However, the fact that God kept his appointment and showed up in the garden to talk with man indicates that whatever separation existed was entirely on the part of Adam. God surely knew that man had fallen, 
But God showed up anyway. Let's go back to our opening question for a moment. As a parent, I tend to see God's response as one of concern, mingled with a bit of fear. If I looked up and couldn't find my child, I would have a moment of heart-stopping terror. Every wicked and evil thing would flash before my imagination as I kicked myself for taking my eyes off them. There would be that rational side in the back of my head saying, don't panic, she's here somewhere, just look in every direction. But the longer it took to see her face, or the back of her head, or the color of her shirt, the more the terror would start to win over. This doesn't make me special, it just makes me a loving dad. You're the same way. Your love for your own exceeds anything and everything you have ever known. There is no price you wouldn't pay to ensure the safety of your own. How much more does our Heavenly Father love us? Any separation in our relationship with the Father is both conceived and perceived entirely on our part. Shame conceived the idea of an angry God, and Adam perceived a separation in his relationship with God as a direct result of that shame. To be clear, he did indeed experience separation, but that separation was on his own part, not God's. God kept his appointment with Adam to meet in the cool of the day, but there was no Adam to be found. I am not deceived. I do not believe that God didn't know what had happened or that he was afraid Adam had been kidnapped. I simply think that in terms of a loving relationship, the garden post-fall is an amazing example of a loving father under the strain of loss and the isolation of a son under the illusion of separation. God was certainly displeased with the sin of the garden, much as we would be if we temporarily lost sight of our child in that crowded mall. But let's remember that God is never shocked by the behavior of humanity. He obviously prefers good over evil, but he never runs from the evil or the evildoer. Instead, it is God's heart to reconcile the fallen to their creator. To the prophet Isaiah, God spoke of his disgust with the system used by Israel to please and appease him. He called their sacrifices futile, their incense an abomination, and stated that he cannot endure the mixture of iniquity and the sacred meeting. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. God even told the nation that when they pray, in Isaiah 1.15, I will hide my eyes from you, and that even if they continue to pray, I will not hear. From these statements, it would seem that mankind had taken a step away from the God that showed up in the garden. But watch how God revealed his heart in the midst of their sin. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 1.18. God's response to failure is a call to reason. He invites them in, much like Jesus will do to those weary and burned out when he says, Come unto me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. There is no pushing away, no separation. Later, when it seems that God is far away, unable to hear man's cry, he states, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah 59, 2. Even here, it does not say that iniquities have separated God from them, but iniquities have separated them from God. This is not mere semantics. In response, Israel admits they have departed from God. 
59, verse 13. And in the next verse, that righteousness stands far off. What is God's response to this argument? Well, Isaiah 59, verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. God was displeased that man's iniquities had created an illusion of separation, causing man to depart from the Lord. They obviously needed an intercessor, someone to speak on their behalf, but there was no one. So God does it himself through his own salvation and his own righteousness. Paul would phrase it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was God's answer to the illusion. Where was God when Jesus was dying on the cross? Was he in heaven while his son suffered on the earth? Is it a spiritual version of the chicken and the egg? If Jesus is God, then God is on the cross. And if God is Jesus, then Jesus was in heaven. Paradox abounds. However, it really isn't so difficult at all. I tread carefully so that doctrine, which is rich in fullness and truth, not be made to appear shallow and simplistic, while at the same time being mindful that there is no profit in making complex that which is simple. So again, where was God when Jesus was dying on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now granted, this is only part of the verse, which is only part of the greater passage, but the message rings clear. When Jesus was on the cross... God was right there. Placing God in Christ at Calvary is no real stretch, and most Christians would agree in principle. But leaving God in Christ runs counter to our philosophy of Calvary. Why else would Jesus cry out asking why God would forsake him if not for a moment of separation? As I explained in my book, Between the Pieces, Jesus does not cry out at Calvary because he has been abandoned but rather to steer his audience to the chapter in Psalms that will describe both his true identity and the reason for his death. Remember, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me is not original with Jesus. He was quoting the opening stanza of Psalm 22. If one takes Jesus' statement as evidence of abandonment, how can they rest assured that God won't abandon them as well? Or better said, if Jesus could be abandoned, why not us? The popular counter-argument is that God abandoned Jesus so that he will never abandon us. Now, while that sounds good on the surface, it survives on the assumption that God was going to abandon man, but he chose to abandon his own son instead. From the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, it seems clear that God never intended to abandon man, and he had ample opportunity. This unease creates the illusion all over again, and it leads to a hiding out behind the trappings of performance and religion. These illusions are a product of a futile mind. Paul encouraged the Ephesians not to walk as the unbelievers walked in the futility of their mind, Ephesians 4.17. Futility is perverseness or depravity. The unregenerate mind is indeed perverse and depraved, always concocting a scheme or plan by which success can be achieved. But this version of the human mind is the polar opposite of God. 
The next verse is Paul's description of the mind of the unbeliever. Ephesians 4.18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Aside from a futile mind and a darkened understanding, the unbeliever is an alien from the life of God. What a phrase. The verb form used here, alienated, is to be shut out from one's fellowship and intimacy. While many accept this as reality for the unbeliever, why does Paul warn the Ephesian believers of the same issue? Perhaps it is because believers often alienate themselves from the life of God. Christ, functioning as our tree of life, is the embodiment of the life of God, which each believer has access to by faith. However, the illusion of separation causes even believers to feel unworthy to partake of that tree for fear that they are unworthy. In verse 20, Paul tells the Ephesians, you have not so learned Christ. In Christ, we learn something entirely different than the perverseness of separation and alienation. In Christ, we have seen the picture of God's love in human form. We have seen the personification of love and affection, mercy and righteousness, peace and joy. What we have learned from Christ is that there is nothing that can separate us from the Father. In Him, the publican and the prostitute have a place at the table, as well as the Pharisee. Only those who separate themselves from his love and affection, the Pharisees did this quite often, ever experience the illusion of separation. Paul uses the alien idea again in his letter to the Colossians, and we'll elaborate more on this topic a little later in the chapter. For now, notice how he couples the idea of alienation with an enemy combatant. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, he says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your own mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Paul considers them once alienated and enemies, but only in your mind. The alienation and the feeling of separation to the point of being God's enemy was not reality. It was all in their head. That's enough for this month. We will be back with more in September 2022. Grace to you.